Welcome back to Two Strike Noise. This is your baseball podcast that takes the deep dive you've been looking for into the Caribbean series. We'll dissect every at-bat, every pitch, every game, really get into the minutiae of the Caribbean series just getting ready to get... Oh, wait, no, 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 no. That was our backup topic, wasn't it? That's... Yeah, that's I did not show prep for that. No, no, that's right. Let's check that. We're going to talk about baseball, some of the crazy characters, events and such for the entire history of the game. You heard him. That's uh, my co-host, Mark A. Johnson. I'm Jeff Paulson. Welcome to Two Strike Noise. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. We're excited to do the show. We certainly are. And, And before we get into our topics for this week, we talked a couple weeks ago about jersey numbers, and I saw a couple of things came up this last week that actually were, were things that we had talked about a couple of weeks ago. You talked about Adam Ottavino. Yes. And uh, his, his wearing the number zero. We also talked about the New York Yankees and the fact that they had run out of single-digit numbers because they've retired so many. Well... Adam Ottavino signed with the Yankees, and it is confirmed he will be wearing number zero. So awesome. that's the first time in franchise history they will have a player wear number zero. And it's also exciting for Yankees fans everywhere. It's another single-digit number they can retire. They found another single-digit. No fractions, no decimals. Good for them. Yeah, I'm excited for them. Now, can we call it the number O for Ottavino, or is that just too kindergarten? If Sadaharo O were playing today, would he wear number zero? I would hope so. I would. I mean, that's that would just, be cool. If you put just O on the back, that covers his whole name and everything. <laughs> you, you do, he, if he played for anyone other than the Yankees, or the Red Sox, so that their his name would actually be on the back. Maybe just put his name and not a number. Maybe. Yep, yeah, he's number O. That would work. Uh, another another jersey number item that came up that I found last week was uh, talking about your Seattle Mariners and somebody that's in the news right now, Ichiro, who's going to start the season at least with the Mariners opening up in Japan. Well, I found something interesting that Ichiro, when he came from Japan to the Mariners, he expressed no preference as to, you know, what number he was going to wear when he got here. And the Mariners went ahead and issued him number 51, which was an odd choice at, in the first place because, of course, Randy Johnson, a lot of old-school Mariner fans, that's number 51 initially for the Mariners. I mean, that was his number. Ichiro wore number 51 when he played in Japan for the Oryx Blue Wave. So the Mariners said, hey, sure, take 51. I guess, did Randy Johnson leave under bad... Like, was there some some a cloud hanging over when he left? No, no, I, not that I remember. Um, I remember... I remember him going to the Astros and winning 10 games um, and getting votes for the AL and NL Cy Young Award. But I don't remember anything negative. It was a trade. It it worked for both teams. That just seems weird that they would have handed him. I mean, I guess they knew he was going to be a big star. But still, I mean, to hand over one of your cornerstone players' numbers that quickly after he leaves. Yeah, I'm not sure. I don't think there was anything too negative going on. At least I don't recall anything. Randy's still beloved here in Seattle, and we even had a, a day honoring Randy Johnson uh, a couple years ago. What's interesting is, again, with that with Ichiro taking that number that had been 
you know, a big number for, for, for the Mariners. He initially hesitated, yeah. apparently. That's filling some big shoes, no pun intended, when you come in as a rookie, especially. Technically a rookie, obviously. He had a stellar career in Japan, but as a rookie in Major League Baseball's eyes, in one of the most Japanese things that, that you'll read about baseball, to avoid insulting Randy Johnson, Ichiro sent him a personal message promising not to bring shame to the uniform. And, and bring shame he did not. He did not, no. One more thing that I had this week, I saw an interesting picture that doesn't have anything to do with jersey numbers, but just an old school, early 90s, I thought was a really cool picture. And I'll post it on on, on Twitter and Instagram for everybody to see. It's, it's a picture of Deion Sanders in a Yankees uniform and Bo Jackson in a Royals uniform. This is obviously taken. It's at Kansas City, I can see. Looks like it's during BP. They both got batting practice jerseys on. And it's just an incredible picture to see these two two sport athletes together and both of these guys were larger than life they were all over the media you know Dion was not a great baseball player Bo was a superstar in both sports which is incredible primetime had a couple of really awesome seasons though I know he hit 300 one year because I had him in Stratomatic and he was an awesome hitter I just always remember him being more so with the Reds and just kind of being okay yeah, no, he was obviously amazing from first to third, you know, and just the pure speed that he had. But uh, he was left-handed with some power. And I remember he had three or 400 at-bats one season where he hit 300. Let's see. So, yeah, 1992, he hit 304. He played in 97 games, 14 triples. Oh, wow. <laughs> no, I don't remember that. That's amazing. Led the league, obviously. Yeah. 14 triples. Let's see, 52 strikeouts, 18 walks. Now, 52 strikeouts, though, in 300 at-bats, that's, that's not too bad. His on-base percentage with only those 18 walks, though, was still 346, which isn't too bad. No, no, not at all. I've got to assume he was batting leadoff. You know, I honestly don't remember, but I would think so. Uh, Steals that year, 26. His career high was 38 in 1994. For his career, uh, he played nine years in the majors. That's that's more than I thought he played. He hit 263. His on-base for his career was only 319. But seeing him and Bo Jackson, I think we talked about it a, a show or so ago, Kyler Murray, the uh, Oklahoma Sooners Heisman-winning quarterback who has entered the NFL draft, who, of course, the Oakland A's picked with their first-round pick last year, and Kyler's kind of waffling as to what he wants to do. Do you think we'll ever see anybody, the likes of Dion or, or Bo, again wow, that's a, in Major League Baseball? That's a great question. Let me say I hope so. In the same manner, you know, teams are getting a little more cautious of, how, of what their players do in the offseason. Certain things that, you know, they could get hurt doing this, that, or the other thing. I think football is kind of something you can get injured in. Are, are there injuries in football? I've... I don't really follow. Yeah, it. yeah, occasionally. Yeah, because these guys they run into each other sometimes. But yeah, I you know I hope so, and I hope that uh, that there's a way that that teams could agree on letting a player do two sports or or you know even uh, even three sports. Of course, the other one being high lie, which would make total sense. <laughs> well, as long as they're playing for a team in Florida right. where those professional high lie leagues are. It could work. Yeah. It could. There's also professional shuffleboard leagues in Florida. Don't you have to be like 65? That You know, I read an article. Uh, 
you are correct for the most part, but I read an article about a guy in his mid-20s that went down there and he is playing professional shuffleboard on the nice. tour down there. Maybe that's a future for me. Maybe that's the one thing I'm going to be good at in life. So I, you know, we bring this up with Kyler Murray. I, my gut feeling is Kyler Murray is going to go play football. Yeah. Um, now he's a very small individual when you look at a football player, let alone a quarterback. He's actually smaller than Russell Wilson, oh, wow. who is considered to be very small in terms of NFL quarterbacks. Right. The A's are kind of taking the position of. We'll let you play football, but we want you to play baseball for us. I'm a little skeptical. I'm not sure, you know, and and baseball draft picks are easily, of the four major sports, the biggest crapshoot. Just because you're drafted in the first round or even the first pick overall means nothing. In hockey, it means you're going to be playing in the NHL the next year. In the NFL, you will be on a roster. In the NBA, you will be on a roster as well. Major League Baseball, it might be four to six years before you see Major League action, and that is still a crapshoot. Yeah, the learning curve in baseball is massive. I'm just not sure that that I'm that excited as an A's fan to have Kyler Murray be a two-sport athlete. Uh, I'm not even sure I'm that excited for him to be an Oakland athletic. I mean, they're, they're trying to promise him a Major League roster spot. Wow if he will come and play baseball. And I'm not sure I'm ready to give up a roster spot. Well, they're counting on his athleticism, uh, overcoming, you know, the struggles and difficulties of hitting. Hitting is hard, you know, and, and especially yeah, and to learn, yeah, to learn in the big leagues. I mean, right. it's just, it's on a team that you're hoping will contend. Right. You know, if this was even the Mariners for this year, where, you know, I think the Mariners will be more competitive than some people are giving them credit for, but it's a quote unquote rebuilding year. So, you know, if you had to give up a roster spot to somebody like that, let him kind of struggle in the big leagues to keep him around. I think that's okay. But Oakland, you know, should be above 500. Frankly, I I don't see a roster spot where they could fit him in. I remember Oakland. Well, I don't remember it, but I remember reading about Oakland using a roster spot once just for a pinch runner. Herb Washington. Herb Washington. Did he ever get an at-bat? Did he just run? So Herb Washington only played two seasons for the A's. Zero at-bats. In 1974, Herb Washington appeared in 92 games. No plate appearances. He scored 29 runs. He swiped 29 bases and was caught stealing 16 times. The next year, he only appeared in 13 games, scored four runs. Again, no plate appearances, two stolen bases, and one caught stealing. That's got to be one of the strangest bunch of stats you could look at right there. That's bizarre. Yeah, that that is weird. No plate appearances. 105 games in his major league career, and not a single time did he go to the plate. That's crazy. Good, good work if you can get it. Boy, was he fast, though, from what I hear. You know, I'm, I'm a young guy. I didn't see all this stuff going on. Um, I didn't, you know, follow baseball in my youth until I was at least five. And, you know, Herb did win a World Series ring. He was on that 74, the, the last of their three oh, in a row. Nice. So he's got a ring, and he had a good season. And then I, I'm going to be honest. I'm, I'm embarrassed as an A's fan. I don't know if he got hurt or if they just said, enough, we need a, we need a roster spot for somebody they can actually play. Right. So what do you say we... Uh, take a deeper dive into a couple of characters stories events teams that we found interesting yeah let's do it all right i I, i'm gonna go first this week 
I have got the story of a team that I had heard about that I knew why they were famous, but I didn't know what was behind them. Did some research, and this is a, a very fascinating story. I'm going to cover the 1899 Cleveland Spiders. Nice. The Cleveland Spiders played between 1887 and 1899 was actually their final season. They played at the descriptively named National League Park for two seasons. I think that's the that's the park when you you play you buy a video game, a baseball video game where they couldn't afford the license fee for Major League Baseball, so it's, right. it's just National League Park. Yes, gotcha. After those two seasons, though, they upgraded to the even more nondescript league park to be a little bit more inclusive. Right. So now they could play the American League, the National League, any league, really. And since they were in the American League, that's probably a good idea. Right. So they were not always known as the Spiders. They initially began as the Cleveland Forest Cities, which makes no sense to me. I'm assuming okay. that that was a nickname of Cleveland at that time, the Forest Cities, but I don't know. I Just like if, if Seattle were the Emeralds instead of the Mariners. Well, they'd be the Emerald Cities. And then they could have an, a Wizard of Oz-themed motif, oh. their alternate jerseys. Yeah, I'd be looking forward to that, let me tell you. Uh, so they were also known as the Cleveland Blues, which would still actually play as a good nickname for a team from Cleveland. Then they officially became known as the Spiders, when they moved to the National League in 1889. Uh, the club was owned by two brothers, Frank and Stanley Robinson. Now, this franchise was actually pretty good when they moved to the National League. In 1891, they signed up a rookie named Denton True Young. Now, this kid is awesome as far as I can tell. He was so good, they gave him a cool nickname, as they were wont to do in that age. They called him Cyclone. Nice. Two syllables. They, they wanted to be able to spit that nickname out, so they, they shortened it to Cy. So they called him Cy Young, which is a great name for a pitcher, but I think it probably puts a bit of pressure on them to have the same name as the award given out to the best pitcher each year. Right. Well, no, I looked up the guy's stats and he's pretty good. So I guess it worked for him. Right. Um, and when did Cy Young pitch again? Uh Oh, let's see. He pitched around this time. We might be talking about the same guy. <laughs> yep, 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 yep. This is the Cy Young, of course. So Cy Young is on the Cleveland Spiders. So that tells you that this team is, is pretty good. Even if they sucked at one point, you could put him out there on the mound every two or three days back in the 1890s. And they probably went every two or three days and you'd probably, you know, be within reach of the pennant. Oh, yeah. So Cy Young, though, was not the only awesome player on this team. They had a second baseman by the name of Cupid Childs, who is a lifetime 300 hitter and... I'm guessing was smooth with the ladies because I'm sure his first name was not really Cupid. He, he could have been the guy that found, you know, set up all the other guys with girlfriends or dates or something like that. Cupid. He could. Well, then he would have been named Wingman Childs. <laughs> Even back then they had wingmen? Oh, oh yeah. Well, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the Spiders had good success throughout most of the 1890s, which included a win in the 1895 Temple Cup Series against the Baltimore Orioles. Now, you know the Temple Cup, don't you, Mark? Oh, boy, I've been to as many Temple Cup games as anyone could say. I love them. I've got all the, the, the DVDs 
and and books about the Temple Cup. But so the Temple Cup in 1895 though is actually well known because of the rowdy fans who pelted the visiting team for each game with eggs and sticks from the stands. So I don't know if the Orioles and the Spiders just maybe they had beef during the regular season. People are throwing sharp objects from the stands. I gotta ask, I mean, uh, was this normal behavior, do you know? Well, I, I spoke to a couple of Temple Cup historians and found out that there weren't any. So I don't know. Okay. I don't know if if this is like a, a standard thing for Temple Cup series or not. Straight but to the source, man. Good job. Regardless, so they had some success. But those haughty days of the Spiders were quickly to come to an end in 1899. So the Robinson brothers, they had a great idea, the, the, the two owners. The St. Louis Browns had just filed for bankruptcy and so the Robinsons came up with the idea of buying the team and changing the name to the Perfectos, the St. Louis Perfectos. Now, at this time, there were no rules about anybody owning more than one team at the same time. Now that the brothers owned both teams in St. Louis and Cleveland, St. Louis was a bigger city at this time, much more densely populated. So instead of starting the Perfectos out with a lackluster roster, they came up with the brilliant idea just to transfer the best players from the Spiders to the Perfectos. This included, of course, you're going to take Cy Young. Sure. Uh, they also took fellow future Hall of Famers Jesse Burkett and Bobby Wallace. So they're stacking the deck. This St. Louis Perfectos team has now got all of the best players from the spider. The Robinsons made no bones about what they were doing. They they even announced that they were gonna treat the spiders as a sideshow. Wow. So that meant the bearded lady would be at third, the strong man catching, no doubt, with a handlebar mustache, probably with a barbell with LBS printed on it too, Most doing likely. curls. Yeah, I think that's what they did back then, wasn't it? I mean, it was consistent. You you had to have a handlebar mustache and uh, you would, they had round barbells that, with, that said LB. I think yep. you're right. That, that was also the time when money was always kept in those bags with the $3 signs on it. That's right. I know that from Bugs Bunny. Okay. So the 1899 uh, season begins with the Cleveland Spiders sporting a decimated roster. Coincidentally, the Spiders were slated to open that season at home against the Perfectos. So the Robinsons, another light bulb over their head great idea why don't we move that series from cleveland to st louis because there's more people there more people will come watch the game they'll have a bigger gate season comes the perfectos okay. take it to the spiders 10 to 1 Lo the local paper the next day proclaims the farce has begun and everyone in cleveland knows what's up so you can imagine the season did not start well for cleveland the fans in cleveland they saw what was going on through the first 16 home games, the Spiders were averaging 199 fans per game. Couldn't quite break the 200 barrier. <laughs> no. And they wouldn't fudge the numbers. They couldn't just, yeah, we got at least 200 people here. Yeah. Had to be accurate. Very tight bookkeeping yeah. in the 1890s. Because of this minuscule attendance, visiting teams started to just refuse to go to Cleveland. They're like, uh... No, you know, that our our portion of the gate isn't even going to cover travel or hotel. So, no. So the Robinson said, you know what? Don't worry about it. We'll come to you. 
So because of this, the Spiders played only 26 more home games the rest of the season. Oh, jeez. So let's take a look at some numbers from this year. So first of all, the reason I always knew about the 1899 Cleveland Spiders was because they are the worst team in the history of baseball. They finished the year with a record of 20 wins, 134 losses. Wow. So on the road, let's not forget that because they traveled to every game, they played 112 games on the road that year. And they finished with a road mark of 11 wins and 101 losses. <laughs> so they broke the century mark on the road. Just 90 games below 500. That's not so bad. No, it's not. I mean, they would have probably just barely finished beneath the Baltimore Orioles if they were in the AL West oh, wow. last season. At home, where they played only 42 games, they were 9-33. and 33. Much better. You know, a, a better winning Much percentage better. at home. <laughs> they only finished 84 games out of first place. So yeah, they would have been right there with the Orioles. St. Louis finished fifth with an 84-67 and 67 record. So all that roster shifting they actually had a good season but they they did only finish fifth the spiders in the month of september went one and 27 so those september call-ups yeah one and 27 is that good uh well again if you ask an orioles fan from last year they might say "Mm, not bad (laughs) so at one point the spiders did have a two-game winning streak one time they had a two-game winning streak so they're wrapping up. They ra- they get that second win, and they're shaking hands, and they're probably just thinking, we got this, man. We got this figured out now. Watch out, world. Here we come. Spider opponents scored 10 or more runs 49 times. Ouch. Yeah, that's 490 runs at least given up in those games. Wow. Pitchers Jim Hewley and Charlie Nepper, they tied for team win lead with four each. Hewley finished with a four and thirty mark, while Nepper totaled a four and twenty-two record. Wow! The offense was not much better, mustering only twelve home runs all season. That tied Bobby Wallace, who, by the way, was moved from Cleveland to St. Louis, who hit twelve home runs of his own that season. Attendance, as you can guess, not good. They drew a total of six thousand and eighty-eight total fans for the entire year. That actually lowered their average. From that 199 we mentioned earlier, lowered it to 145 fans per game. Uh, Compare that to the opening game, which if you remember was moved from Cleveland to St. Louis. That game alone drew 15,000 fans. So it was close. It 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 was almost half of the crowd that they played in front of one game. Okay. For their entire home season. The high point of the year, though, the Spiders did lead the league in one category, games played. They were the only team to actually finish all of their scheduled 154 games. So, bully for them. Well, they get they get points for attendance, you know? Yes, and I'm guessing that every other team in the league would make sure that they got those games scheduled against the Spiders in to pad their own record. Oh, I would I would hope so. So, to nobody's surprise after this dismal season, the team was disbanded. That's what a 20 and 134 record will get you. So, we've mentioned some players that are on this team. They've got a lot of great names on this team. Not great players, but great names. OC Schreckengost. Wow. I'm sure his nickname was Shrek. 
if it wasn't, it should be. So O.C. was a roommate and battery mate for Rube Waddell, who was a great member of the Philadelphia Athletics. Next, we've got one of my favorites, Crazy Schmidt. (laughs) Crazy Schmidt. That is some Crazy Schmidt. His real name was Frederick. I couldn't find out why he was called crazy. I don't know. Was I'm wondering if maybe he was a little off kilter or maybe if just by putting the word crazy in front of the last name Schmidt leads to hijinks. <laughs> hijinks, which of course oftentimes leads to chaos. And that's what we like here. These are the kind of stories we like. Uh, Also on the roster, Highball Wilson. Nice. He pitched only one game for the Spiders. Coincidentally, a loss. That's a shocker. Yeah. I'm guessing that either he enjoyed an adult beverage after the game, or he just couldn't hit the strike zone. Everything was was up. Right. Well, it could have been been both maybe he enjoyed an adult beverage before the game and that's why he couldn't hit the uh, high pitch everything he threw was up and that's why he only pitched one game oh yes his real name though was howard howard highball wilson that's a great name it it is a good name i think highball is a good nickname maybe not for a pitcher next chief zimmer interesting guy the chief zimmer first he was known as the finest defensive catcher of his day but He's even more interesting off the field. He created a very successful baseball board game. Wow. He was a representative of the precursor to the Players Union, as well as he owned a successful cigar business that he would promote while on the road. So despite being nicknamed Chief, though, he was not Native American, but he was the head of the Poughkeepsie Indians Baseball Club at one point. So they called him Chief, and it just stuck with him throughout his career. Next on our roster of quirky names is Harry Lockhead, which happens to be my porn name. (laughs) Now, is that Harry H-A-I-R-Y or H-A-R-R-Y? Well, for me, the way I spell it, yes. But the Harry Lockhead that was on the Spiders is the traditional Harry H-A-R-R-Y. Next, we've got Sport McAllister. Now, Sport, beyond sounding like he should have been a play-by-play announcer for the radio broadcast of the Spiders, he played all nine positions throughout his career, including he umpired a game when there was concern that the crowd might get a little upset with the scheduled umpire for the game. <laughs> the, final, the final player that I'd like to highlight, his name was Louis Sokalexis. He was known as the Deerfoot of the Diamond, and he was actually Native American. Nice. And uh, he's thought to be the first actual Native American to play baseball professionally. Now, this is a story that I find interesting here. I can find no confirmation about this. When the Cleveland Naps changed their name to the Indians in 1915, it was reportedly to honor Sock Alexis. Oh, wow. I have no idea if that's true. And, you know, it's a good story if it is, but did, or were they like, hey, remember that, that Indian that was on that really bad team in 1899 here? Why don't we honor him and, and name this team after him? <laughs> because he did so much for the community. He did a lot. He did a lot of work off the field. Yeah. It's a good nickname, Deerfoot of the Diamond. Yeah, that, no, that's good. I like, I still got to stick with highball. I think I want to go by highball from now on. <laughs> All right. Well, then in the next intro to the next show, I will just, I will introduce you as Highball. And I will probably have forgotten I said that. 
So that's what I have got on the history of the worst team in Major League Baseball, the 1899 Cleveland Spiders. That was outstanding. I had heard of how bad they were, but it's good to get a little more insight. That's what we do here. Now, I understand you have got some information on a team that probably most people have heard of, but might not know the entire story. Uh, I want to talk about the House of David uh, barnstorming team from early in the 1900s. They were actually known, the full name was the Israelite House of David. And you may have heard of these guys, uh, and you've seen pictures, I imagine, of these. They look like mountain men out there with big scruffy beards and, and hair that was, you know, down to their shoulders and so on. That was the, the House of David. and uh, Not not too dissimilar from the way that a lot of players have started to look in the last five to seven years. Yeah, yeah. I, I've seen some House of David-looking guys out there. And, uh, you know, I mean, I myself am a long-haired hippie freak, so... Maybe I'll just go from now on as just a member of the House of David instead of a long hair. You could start at first base right now for the House of David. Well, I could start for the Cleveland Spiders. It sounds like they needed players. Yeah, but they had a strict no facial hair policy. Well, forget that. I I wouldn't mind playing for a losing team, but if I can't have my beard, forget about it. So where did these guys come from, the House of David? Well, what happened was there was this couple, Benjamin and Mary Purnell. And they were from Benton Harbor, Michigan. And in uh, 1903, they founded a commune called the Israelite House of David. And um, they were an Adventist commune. So all that means is that they were looking for the second coming of Christ. So they were at first uh, and foremost a religious commune. And by, gosh, it was 1916. I had to do some math. By 1916, they had 1,000 members of their commune. That's why I heard the crickets there. That's right. So it, it, it was actually a very populated commune. And uh, so the guy that founded it, Benjamin Purnell, was a sports enthusiast, and he was really big into athletics and so on. He said it was, you know, good for your soul, good for your body, and so on like that. I have this little side note I want to throw in, even though it's a little macabre. The Purnells had two children, and that was before they started the commune, because once they started the commune, you were not allowed to procreate or even attempt to anymore you were not allowed to shave your beard or cut your hair have sex or eat meat wow i don't know if that would fit in today's society very well uh there are a couple of those things i could go without but i'm not shaving my beard for anyone so they had two kids but nobody in the commune had kids after they joined the commune so there were some children there but it was like you know they had been grandfathered in sort of thing so they actually had one of their kids and this is terrible uh, died in a firework factory explosion. Now, the reason I bring that up is because what a way to go, man. I mean, do you think if I was going to go, if I had to pick the way I was going to go, if everybody wants to go, you know, pass away in their sleep quietly. If not that, I want to get blown up in a fireworks factory explosion because that's just awesome. <laughs> Can you imagine if people talking about, remember that guy got blown up in a fireworks explosion? Well, you know, I think it also speaks a lot of how far we've come in fireworks safety since then, because now we just have people blowing fingers off as opposed to actually dying. Yes. Safe and sane is what we like to call our fireworks now. (laughs) You know, it reminds me of a Stephen Wright statement. He said, I remember when the candle factory burned down, everybody just stood around singing happy birthday. (laughs) So anyway, so we went into... The uh, no cutting your hair, no shaving, it was based on apparently a passage in the book of Leviticus, 
which makes reference to the growth of the hair representing the growth of the soul. So these guys all had really lengthy souls and beards. So in 1913, the House of David built a baseball field. They were encouraged to uh, go out and play ball. They, they uh, had some really good players, and they decided to put together an actual team. And they started playing against local teams, semi-pro teams, and so on. They were uh, pretty crazy with doing tricks and fun stuff, playing pepper. And it was actually became a thing to get to the game early to watch the House of David warm up. So it was sort of like the magic circle with the uh, Harlem Globetrotters. And uh, they would do all kinds of cool tricks, and you would have to follow the ball. And sometimes you wouldn't see where it went. And it was, it was a lot of fun from what I was reading. I read in in one of the the short articles I read, they actually would even like hide it in their beards sometimes. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, and they they all had long beards. If you did not have a long beard, you had to put on a fake beard so you would fit in. But interestingly, there was also a Black House of David, which was an African-American barnstorming team, and they would barnstorm through the Negro Leagues. And so House of David would play the uh, Negro League teams so even before Jackie Robinson, the House of David was had the foresight to realize that baseball was baseball and playing against the base, the best players in the world was what they wanted to do regardless of race or color. So I thought that was really cool. Actually, if you go to the Negro League Baseball Museum in Kansas City, Missouri, they, uh, you learn that they actually give credit to this, and they called them funny-looking, long-haired, whiskered white team from Benton Harbor, Michigan called the House of David. It's pretty cool that they were recognized also in the Negro Leagues. They had, at different times, they became so popular, they had three different teams touring and barnstorming. Uh, a lot of, of uh, players who had some stature actually wanted to play. And to, apparently, this is up in the air. Some people say that they did. Some people say they didn't. But from what I have read, uh, Grover Cleveland Alexander, Satchel Page, Mordecai Brown all played for the House of David at one point or another, and Babe Ruth. Now, have you seen the picture of uh, Babe Ruth sporting a, a long fake beard? That would be <laughs> him playing it's for a the great House picture. of David. It is. It is. And um, so there's actually a story that Percy Walker, who was one of the best pitchers for the House of David, struck out Babe Ruth in an exhibition game. And according to this legend, Babe Ruth presented Walker with his bat immediately after striking out. And I thought that was cool. They kept playing for uh, the longest time, got back down to only one team after Ben Purnell passed away. So Mary started running the team. His wife started running the team, and they called them uh, the City of David. And they, so the House of David actually ceased existing in 1936. Um, the City of David picked up where they left off, and they played until 1956. And eventually barnstorming kind of went out of style, and so the House of David just kind of disappeared into history. I, I imagine that was one of the most fun things to possibly do regarding baseball is go see a, a, a team like that. I wish there was still barnstorming. It would sure be a lot of fun. Yeah, that's a great story. I, you mentioned Pepper, and that was one of the things that when you told me this, I, I remember growing up going to minor league games. You didn't see it so much in the majors, but in every minor league stadium that I would go to, on the infield, somewhere on the wall in the infield, there would always be uh, something that would say "No Pepper Allowed," yes. and I had no—I knew what Pepper was, but I didn't really know what Pepper was. And, and then I, you know, read some some stories about the House of David when you told me about this, and you know, they would get in those circles and do these things, but you know, they were 
they were doing some really cool things, but they were <laughs> tearing up the infield because they're wearing their spikes. Oh, I see. And so they would just ruin the fields. And that is where no pepper came from so that nobody would, would disrupt the, you know, screw up the, the field before a game. Yeah. Wow. So, okay. That makes sense because you're doing a lot of stepping and reaching and okay. Yeah. That's interesting. I always saw the signs, but I didn't know why. It's, I, I don't know. I have, I usually get to a couple of minor league games a year. I don't, I don't even think they put those up anymore. I don't, I would be willing to bet that most young players, hell, I don't even know how many <laughs> major leaguers even know what pepper is. Yeah. I don't, do kids do play pepper when they're in little league now? I don't, I don't even know. Yeah, I have no idea. That might be a relic of the past. It could be. Yeah. Cause you don't see those signs either. Huh. Well, hey, I, I got a few extra facts to throw in about the House of David. Hit me with them. Okay. They had uh, a, they built a, an amusement park in 1908, and it was sort of the forerunner of parks like Disneyland and so on. Um, they had a miniature railroad that went around uh, the, their amusement park and so on. And in 1950, check this out, 1950, Walt Disney himself bought one of the miniature steam engines from the House of David for 100 bucks. So, and did he name it Willie? Uh, you would hope so. A, a couple other, a couple other notes. Uh, sugar, sugar cones were first sold in quantity out of the House of David's amusement park. They came up with sugar cones to hold to hold their ice cream concessions. Here's interesting. The House of David was ahead of its time as far as not just baseball but bowling. Okay, the, <laughs> I, I kid you not. The House of David received the country's first patent for automatic pin setters, okay? Is that crazy? Wow. Yeah, so this this commune, big time into baseball, apparently also into bowling, and got tired of setting the pins up all on their own. Well, I imagine with all of the things that they're not allowed to do, you play baseball all day, but once the sun goes down, you, you might get bored, so go bowling. There you go. Gotta, yeah. gotta keep busy. Yeah, that's right. And apparently they did. I don't know if, if they uh, kept track of their 300 games or not, but um, I'm sure there were plenty. It was, like you said, <laughs> not a lot else to do. I got a few myths about House of David that have come up that I was able to debunk. One, my dad used to tell me he would talk about the House of David, but he would say, he said they were a, a group of Jewish ballplayers. They weren't. They considered themselves Christian Israelites. So they weren't necessarily Jewish. There is also a myth that the House of David was a, a way for players that were kicked out of organized baseball, and they could keep playing if they played for the House of David. Um, but the House of David never hired a single blacklisted player. So that that's all uh, a load of hooey as well. There is a, a, a famous one-armed baseball player named Pete Gray. And if you look him up, you can see um, you can see some pictures. He actually was missing his entire arm. He played for the House of David before he played in the big leagues. So a lot of interesting stuff. I, I know that facts get diluted over time, so I can't really vouch for all these things being 100% true. Hopefully someday uh, I'll get the opportunity to go to the House of David Museum um, near Benton Harbor, Michigan, where it all started. And it's by appointment only. You know, you can go there and they have actual tickets from the barnstorming days and, and relics from the past and stuff like that. It's one of those, like I said, one of those 
teams that I had heard about, you see the pictures. I mean, the pictures are what most people see because those are those are so famous. Oh, with yeah. All that hair. Yeah. All that hair. The, I could see how you could their backs easily put a ball in there. Oh, I yeah. I wonder if I wonder if they ever pulled off a hidden ball trick hmm. by just putting it in their beard and then just tagging somebody. Yeah, it's highly possible. I mean, they were a goofy bunch of guys. All right. Well, that's uh, that's very interesting. Thank you very much. Now is the time of the show where we like to do a little something called second best. Your second best. Better than most of the rest. Not better than number one. Number one is better than anyone. So, first of all, please, all the emails asking about the second best theme song, it is, uh, will be coming out very shortly on iTunes and, and every other major platform. The, the requests and the, it's just been overwhelming. It is an incredible song. It's an, an amazing song. It's, um, you just want to sing along and it sticks in your head. It's great stuff. Well, we're going to release it so everybody can, you know, just, if you just, can be patient we, we will get that out there but what second best is it's uh, where we come up with a topic and we will certainly tell us what we think the best answer is but beyond that we want to go a little deeper and find out what we think the second best answer is so the rules of the game are one of us will go i'm gonna i'm gonna go this week and mark does not know what my topic is so I will tell him what my topic is, and then I'll give him a little uh, time to go in the corner and, and scratch out some notes for his answer while I give you my answer, and uh, we'll, we'll see what we can come up with. So today's topic is a topic that I think, well, I don't think, we will definitely do an episode just on this topic, but we're going we're gonna to play it short form here today. And I want to know, Mark, what your second, what you think the second best baseball movie of all time is. Mm, okay, okay. I can, I can do that. So while you think about that, I'm going to tell you what mine is. I'm going to tell you what I think the, the best baseball movie of all time is. For me, that would be The Natural. Oh, yeah. I, I put The Natural up there as one of my favorite just movies of all time. Completely different from the book, though, if you happen to read the book. It's not a happy book. No, it really isn't. Uh, but but we're, we're here to talk about the second best. So I'm going to go with my second, what I think the second best baseball movie of all time is. And uh, I am going to have to say it's going to be The Sandlot for me. Oh, yeah. I freaking love The Sandlot. I actually just saw something about Wendy peppercorn uh, <laughs> earlier today and there is just nothing about this movie that i don't like except for maybe the sandlot too but <laughs> the sandlot the original uh, i would i would have given my left foot to have a childhood like that i i never had people that wanted to play baseball you know they all my friends in the neighborhood we were riding bikes and and exploring and doing stuff like that but we never Nobody ever wanted to play baseball like that, and I would have, I would have done anything for that. That, that would be my dream summer if I could 
go into one movie, that might be it. That's a that's my what I think is the second best baseball movie of all time. Yeah, that's a that's a total classic, and it's one of those movies you can watch again and again. Okay, so now I'm a little bit on the spot here because I am also a huge movie buff. So I got to get this right. Um, my favorite baseball movie of all time is Moneyball. I know you aren't going to be a fan of that, but um, <laughs> <laughs> it's a great movie. It really it's is. not. It's not rooted in a whole lot of reality, but it's a great movie. <laughs> I tell you, one one reason I love it so much is that it really is all about baseball. There's there's parts where they talk about Billy Bean and his relationship with his daughter, and that's all great. It shows the human side of of Billy Bean and and so on. But uh, it's mostly it either takes place on the field or in the front office about making trades, about signing players, and so on like that. It's just all about baseball, not necessarily like. A uh, certain other movie that I'm not a fan of that's more about minor league groupies than it is about uh, baseball. <laughs> so that's my favorite. And I guess I would have to say my second favorite is a classic in my mind, Major League. And it's because for a while I was actually cutting my hair like Charlie Sheen did in that movie when I was in college. <laughs> Yeah, and I had a buddy who would who would carve you know different symbols out in the back of my head. I had to trust. Please him. tell me you've got pictures. Please tell me there's pictures. There has to be somewhere, but uh, I I don't have any that are are that I can get to uh, within the next oh thirty or forty years. <laughs> as far as I know. Well, I'll give your wife a call. We'll see what we yeah, come up with. Yeah. All right. So yeah, uh, Major League. I I enjoy that. There's a lot of baseball in that one. Um, the romance may be a little hokey, but it's not too bad. Uh, the characters are very fun individuals. Um, I love the Pedro Serrano character and the Willie Mays Hayes character. Uh, just a lot of fun. It's not really grounded in realism. Like, that's never going to happen in a million years. <laughs> but it is, you know what? It, we, we always say truth is stranger than fiction. And I've seen some weird stuff happen in baseball that I wouldn't have believed if it wasn't if I didn't see it happen with my own eyes. So I guess you never know, but I don't think it's really was made to be based in realism. It is a fun fantasy baseball movie and yeah, it gives you a chance to is. root for uh, uh, a team of, of a bunch of nobodies who, you know, that's basically the story of my life hanging out with a bunch of, nobodies. well, you're, you're a Mariners fan. So it'll be kind of like next year. Ouch. Yeah. Well, maybe a little bit, but it's going to be fun. I'm telling you that as fun as major league, probably. I agree. I, it is a really fun movie. And, you know, the one thing, though, is a, is a stickler for baseball that gets me is when Serrano hits the home run at the end and he carries his bat around the bases with him. Because technically, as soon as he touches first base, he's out. You can't carry the bat. Oh, geez. Yeah. But no, it's a no for real, though. That's that is a, a, a good movie. It's like you said, not really based in in reality, but. It's it's a fun movie that non-baseball fans can enjoy baseball with. Plus, I got to say, I probably quote that movie. That might be one of my top five like quoted movies just as I'm living my life. Yeah. And not even when I'm watching a baseball game. Well, you know what's interesting is I actually remember um, seeing a trailer or a preview for Major League, and it had a scene in the preview that wasn't in the movie. And I always thought that was really weird. It was uh, somebody hit a home run off of uh, Rick Vaughn, and the catcher came out and said, hey, don't worry, that ball wouldn't have been out of most parks. 
And he says, name one. <laughs> and he goes, Yellowstone. So, but that wasn't in the movie. It was only in the preview. They're going to have to come out with an extended director's cut. It's, there's some weird stuff about that movie. When we do a show on movies, um, I'll, I'll give you some pretty interesting stuff about that movie. So just looking quickly at the cast of Major League, two names jump out in terms of the real baseball world. Actually, I guess three, because Bob Euchre. Oh, my yes. God. I mean, there's a we're, there's going to be a show just on Bob Euchre alone, because Bob Euchre is gold. But also Absolutely. in that movie, Steve Yeager, catcher famous yes. for being the Dodgers, and Pete Vukovic, yes. who was Haywood, you know, kind of the, the villain yeah. of the movie. Right. He had the look. All right. Well, those are those are two great movies. I I will concur with both of them in, in terms of being up there as as best movies. As as an A's fan, I take Hardball with a big grain of salt. But yeah, the, uh, I love I love all of the real footage they use. They use Bill King and mm-hmm. uh, Ken Korak's uh, radio calls. It's I, I'm a big fan of that. But good job. Thank you. And it, interestingly, I just want to throw one more baseball movie out there because we didn't mention it. Honorable mention for me, A League of Their Own, a classic. All right. Well, uh, thank you, Mark, for uh, for enlightening us about House of David. That was very entertaining. I hope everybody uh, likewise will go out and start looking for a Cleveland Spiders hat. I wish there was one. I would buy one. In fact, next time I coach Little League, I'm going to try and talk to team into calling themselves the spiders. The spiders. Nice. Yeah. Very nice. In honor. Well, with you on the staff, they will no doubt have better record than the actual Cleveland spiders. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I'm, I'm planning on winning a few more games. All right. Well, thank you for listening. Uh, just a reminder, you can follow us. We love to post all of the stuff that we talk about, pictures, links, all of that we like to put on our social media. You can follow us at Two Strike Noise on Twitter, and that is a TWO, Two Strike Noise, uh, as well as on Instagram. Likewise, there we are, Two Strike Noise. And uh, with that, we will bid you adieu and hope to see you next time on Two Strike Noise. Thanks for listening, everybody. Have a great day. 